0: When I agreed to come speak at the church today, I did not know that I would be following Amanda's testimony that is incredible, but incredibly heartbreaking. And I also didn't know that I would be following Dolly Parton, the Beatles, and the Bengals. (laughs) So I present myself humbly to you. First, I want to say hello to all the campuses that are joining us, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, DeKalb, um, Streamwood, Bartlett, and of course, St. Charles, here in the room. It's my honor to be with you today for many reasons, but mostly because I am an Illinois native. My parents are both from Illinois, Charleston and Glen Ellen. They actually went to Eastern Illinois University. And although they raised me in Pensacola, Florida, I was born in Mattoon, Illinois. And I'm pretty sure my mom has been disappointed that my career has taken me up the East Coast, from DC to New York to now Boston, instead of to the Midwest, because she loves the Midwest. So I'm happy to be here, but I think my mom might be even happier that I'm here today. (laughs) Last week, Clayton spoke, if you were here, you might remember, he spoke about the beauty of creation and the goodness and joy of our working alongside God to make new things out of the raw materials of his creation. You may remember him saying that God made a good world, but not a finished one. He said God made cows, but he didn't make milkshakes. God made rubber inside trees and metal inside the ground, but we made bicycles. He filled the sea with salt and and the ground with potatoes, and we made french fries. And if it had been me last week instead of Clayton, I would have added he made vocal cords and he made music, and then Lin-Manuel Miranda made Hamilton. (laughs) The problem is, though, is that the result of our work isn't just milkshakes, bicycles, french fries, and musicals. We know that every product we make from God's raw creation is not good, and every intention we have in our work is not pure. In 1993, I went to the movie theater, so I'm outing my age a little bit, and to see Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park. In it, a wealthy entrepreneur, you may remember John Hammond, launches a dinosaur theme park and brings three specialists, a paleontologist, a paleobotanist, and a chaos theorist, to come view the park to calm investors. After touring the property and learning how the dinosaurs were cloned, through extracting dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes and filling in genome gaps with frog DNA, what could go wrong? The chaos theorist, Ian Malcolm, who you may remember as played by Jeff Goldblum, expresses serious reservations about the dinosaur park. He says, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here staggers me. Don't you see the danger, John, inherent in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet has ever seen. But before you even knew what you had, you patented it, you packaged it, and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. John is offended. He is proud of the work he's done. He says to Ian, I don't think you're giving us due credit. Our scientists have done something that no one else has done before. And in one of the best lines to have ever come out of Hollywood, I think, Ian replies to John, saying, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. This, to me, is the money quote of the whole film. John and his scientists are so busy trying to make a name for themselves, that they don't consider the dangers or consequences of their work. Their selfish ambition is unbridled. Unless you think that type of ambition is something only in the movies, we've seen something similar in recent com- um, conversations about Facebook, a company that started with a good plan to connect the world. A few weeks ago, a memo from a top Facebook executive was leaked, and it read in part, maybe it costs a life, by exposing exposing someone to bullies. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on our tools. The ugly truth is that we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is de facto good. And in his testimony before Congress this past Tuesday that nearly mirrors the lesson of Jurassic Park as if we haven't learned anything since 1993, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg told the Senate, it is clear now that we did not do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility and that was a big mistake. Between Jurassic Park story, Facebook executives admission and Amanda's testimony, one thing is clear. When we talk about our work, it is not unfortunately just milkshakes, bicycles, Boeings, french fries, musicals, fill in the blanks. We're talking about pride, arrogance, frustration, and brokenness. We're talking about our selfish motives and our manipulating otherwise neutral tools. Although the idea of work we learned last week started off good, something went terribly wrong. And today I want to look at three things in Genesis 3 to learn more about why work went wrong, how work went wrong, and what can be done about it. And those three items are the fruit, thorns and thistles, and the flaming sword. First, fruit. I'm gonna read Genesis 1 through 13. This is why things went wrong. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, "'Where are you?' He answered, "'I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid.' Because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. In Genesis 2, just prior to this, God has placed Adam and Eve in a garden, and he tells them they can eat of any tree except for one. So, of course, what's the one tree they want to eat from? It's the one tree that he says don't eat from it. And if they disobey him, he says they will die. Now, there's likely nothing special about this tree. It was simply a test. God basically saying, I want you to do something for me, not because you understand why or because you can see how it benefits or hurts you but because of who I am and because you love me and because you trust me and because it's my word. This is an opportunity for them to obey God as their ultimate joy and to obey him simply because he said so. But Adam and Eve, if you know the story, they don't obey him, which we just read. Instead of being satisfied with literally all the other fruit of all the other trees in the garden, they want the fruit of the provision tree. And thus they embrace the big lie, which is that you cannot trust God. And as the serpent warms after they eat it, they become like God, which means they put themselves in God's place and decide for themselves how to live. And two things immediately happen. One, they distance themselves from God. When they hear him walking in the garden, they hide. Adam says he's naked, which is he feels exposed, vulnerable, and ashamed. And then the second thing they do is they distance themselves from each other. When the Lord asks Adam whether he's eaten of the tree, Adam immediately blames Eve, and Eve fails to take responsibility too. So you have a distancing between God and man, and between man and woman. And this is significant because the scope of the fall is so big. The problem for this story is that Adam and Eve represent us. They stand in our stead. From this moment on, we live in a tension. Although we were designed to know, serve, and love God, and to love others, we instead choose to live for ourselves and go against the design of our own making and purpose. And we feel a deep restlessness that causes us to feel guilty, to prove ourselves, or even to rebel. And we also distrust and fear others. Our desires are turned inward, not outward. Not only do we want the wrong things, we quite often want the right things for the wrong reasons. And this distancing of ourselves and our selfishness and our brokenness, it affects every aspect of our nature. I once heard someone say that if sin is the color blue, then everything is a shade of blue. Or as theologian Al Walters puts it, Adam and Eve's fall into sin was not just an isolated act of disobedience, but in an event of catastrophic significance for creation as a whole. The effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. So this means our work is not exempt. Sin doesn't just affect our personal lives, our lives at home and at church, it also affects our public lives when we leave, when we leave the walls of our, our home and our church. Everything is affected. And work is disordered. Second point, thorns and thistles. This is how the fall affects our work. I'm going to read Genesis 3, 14 through 23. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. When I googled, why is work so dot dot dot, if you guys have ever done Google, it auto-completes, like suggestions that most of the population who's googling, like, is actually asking, and the words that auto-completed my question, why is work so, included the, literally included, this was the entire list, I'm not, like, this is everything people are Googling. Boring, stressful, hard, depressing, draining, tiring, slow. The fact that work so obviously includes painful toil, is the reason that when, Christ, um, when the church asked me which topic of creation, fall, redemption, restoration I wanted to speak on, I immediately said the fall. It's obvious. To be clear, though, work itself is not the curse. But now it lies with all other aspects of human life under the curse of sin. Genesis tells us that thorns and thistles will come up as we seek to grow fruit, food. And just as Adam and Eve represent all of us, Gardening here represents all human labor and culture building. All of it will be marked by frustration in at least four ways. Work will be fruitless, meaningless, selfish, and exilic. First, our work is fruitless. What do we mean when we say the work is fruitless? We mean that in our work, we will be able to envision more than we will be able to accomplish both because of a lack of ability in ourselves and also because of environmental and situational constraints. Our goals will not be met, our plans will be frustrated, and our work will be filled with pain and conflict. This is Amanda's story. No matter what she or anyone else does, some situations will not be fixed. She said, almost on a daily basis, we get patience where anything you do is not going to work. When I was in law school, I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I worked on a capital case um, in New York City. The defendant was charged with conspiracy, drug distribution, and two counts of murder. The trial lasted two weeks, and because I was still a law student and not yet admitted to the New York bar, I couldn't sit with the counsel at the counsel's table in the courtroom. I sat instead in the galley with the victim's families. And because I was there every day for two weeks with them, I got to know the victim's families very well. And one day, we were in the, I was in the ladies' restroom with one of the victim's sisters, and she was very emotionally moved, and I asked her if everything was okay, if there was anything I could do, and she responded to me, you know, Bethany, even if I get justice in this case, even if the jury finds the defendant guilty, even if the judge sentences him to death, nothing is going to bring my brother back to me. He is dead, and he will always be dead. No verdict is going to change that. My heart broke for her. It was a sober reminder that work, in this case prosecutorial work, can bring a great amount of justice to the world, but it cannot bring ultimate justice. And we all feel this frustration, from parents who clean up the same mess day after day, to farmers or builders who see natural disasters destroy the work of their hands, to artists, or quite often the unemployed, who feel that their potential is an elusive goal. It is, not wrong, it is not wrong to long for fruitfulness. We want our work to bear fruit. But as long as we are on this side of eternity, our work will always have some amount of fruitlessness. Second, our work is meaningless. I once saw a sign that read, half the world is in a crisis of poverty and the other half in a crisis of meaning. Though many of us in the developed world are free from the pains of poverty, we often toil under a daily grind that feels devoid of meaning. And even though some argue that trying to find deep meaning in our work is like putting lipstick on a pig or rearranging chairs on the Titanic, it's a fool's errand, it is hard to escape the idea that the thing we spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week doing ought to matter somehow. In 2016, my friend Ed Moy became the director of the U.S. Mint, which you may know makes and circulates coins. Many of its employees work in factories, doing the same thing day after day, and rarely engage creativity or innovation in their work. It wasn't surprising to him, then, that employee morale was incredibly low when he joined the Mint. In fact, every year they rank the best places to work in the federal government, and the U.S. Mint, when he joined, was number 211 out of 217. And he wanted to change that. He held employee town halls to get ideas for what to improve. He expanded telecommuting. He made employee bonuses more fair. And he did many things. The first year, he held, um, he did, he, in these employee town halls, he got 10 ideas. He implemented all 10. The next year, he, that didn't work, they did it again. He implemented more 10. So the first year they went up from 2.10, they went from 2.11 to 2.10, the next year they went from 2.10 back to 2.11. (laughs) But he was a Christian, and so he knew work was good in its essence, and so he read Genesis, and he realized that meaninglessness is a part of the broken world, and he wanted to have it, he had an idea. He needed a bigger vision for his employees, he needed to give them meaning. So he rebranded the Mint with a new tagline, connecting America through coins, and reminded them how coins are a part of our national identity. We toss coins in fountains, we, toss, we flip them at football games, they're a part of who we are. And then he imbibed every job description from factory worker to top executive with a new meaning related to the tagline. For example, quality control was no longer just about making sure there were mo- no mistakes, It was about making sure our coins were good ambassadors in foreign countries, or about not holding up the American economy. After three years of implementing the new narrative across the board at every level, the mint rose in the rankings from 211 to 58. It was the biggest jump in history of the survey for any federal agency on the list. And it wasn't just a slick marketing campaign. Ed connected to his employees' need to be meaning makers which is who God made us to be. But even this story, as awesome and fun and great as it is to hear, still is not enough. After all, coins may not last forever. America may not last forever. We still need a bigger vision. As the wisdom writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. No matter how much we accomplish or build or earn or create, it is never enough. Satisfaction in our work always seems elusive because even though it is about creating and about making things, it's also about daily humiliations, nervous breakdowns, ulcers, accidents, shouting matches, failures, and more. And it is precisely because our work is so difficult that we need a greater, deeper narrative in which to understand it. Third, our work is selfish. Work is meant to be an instrument of God's providence and a way for us to love and serve the basic needs of our neighbor. Work at its best focuses on others and making an excellent work product. At its worst, though, it is turned inward. We approach work as a way to make ourselves complete, not to serve others. And pride is shot through everything we do, because pride gives us personal significance and self-glorification. C.S. Lewis warns us of pride. He says, Now what I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure of having something, only out of having it more than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. There's a famous experiment that was conducted by a biologist named William Moore that involved chickens. Moore wanted to find out how productive a group of chickens could be if if it was filled with only the most productive chickens, which he called super chickens. Now, you might be wondering what makes a chicken productive. It's pretty easy. It's how many eggs they lay. Ones that lay a lot of eggs are super chickens, and ones that lay an average amount are just average chickens. And he separated out the super chickens from the average chickens. And after six generations, he compared the productivity of the two flocks by counting the total number of eggs laid, and the results were astounding. The average, generally productive flock was plump, fully feathered, healthy, and more productive than ever. The super flock, however, had only three surviving chickens. The rest had pecked each other to death. The experiment's relevance to our lives, as some sociologists have argued, is very significant. We start out in the general population, in kindergarten, we're all the same. And then we, as we move through school, we constantly feed super chickens, and they, become, they go through magnet schools in middle school, AP, IB classes, college, elite college, graduate school. By the time we, by the time we get to work, it's, we're just really competitive people. We see productivity as zero sum, my success depends on your failure because there is only one spot at the top, there's only one valedictorian, there's only one CEO and I have to win it, you can't. It's a killer, this mentality is a killer for group success which is what work has to be. And then we end up competing, we end up in disunity and we end up in strife. Fourth, our work is exilic even if our work were fruitful, meaningful, and selfless, we would still face this last implication of the fall. Our work is exilic. Let me read again the last verse that I just read, Genesis 3.23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The scriptures tell us, This is the start of it, but the scriptures tell us throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, that we are exiles, sojourners, and foreigners in a land that is not our own. We are resident aliens called to live out the gospel in all spheres of culture in a way that seeks the peace and prosperity of the city. The English pastor Dick Lucas once preached a sermon on Joseph called The Man God Uses. Immediately, you might think the man or God uses is a church leader of some sort. But Lucas says, In the long term, I believe, I think being a preacher, missionary, or leading a Bible study in many ways is easier. There is a certain spiritual glamour in doing it, and what we should be doing each day is easier to discern, more black and white, not so gray. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to use men and women in ministry, but in law and medicine in the arts, in business, and more. This is the great shortfall today. To live as sojourners in the private sphere in our home or in our church is one thing. In these places, people agree with our worldview and perspective on ultimate things. But in the workplace, this just isn't the case. I remember working when I was in the federal government, working with a very top-level executive um, in one of the departments. And um, she was deciding whether to take a meeting with someone. We were talking about what that meeting could look like. And she confessed to me, honestly, I don't want to meet with him because he's a part of the Christian mafia. She didn't know I was a Christian. So when, you, when we are in these places, we are, we are working with people who don't agree with our worldview. We are working with people who have radically different narratives of why the world is broken and what can be done about it. And there often isn't a right answer, but often there is a wise answer. And that is what Dick Lucas says is the gray. It's quite often easy to have black and white in the church. It's so hard to have black and white quite often in our work situations because there's just so many things that can come up. And sometimes we're mocked. Discipleship for exiles is different from discipleship in a culture where the Christian faith is assumed. Living as exiles changes our expectations I don't expect everybody to understand where I come from. I want to serve them. It requires sacrifice, compromise, contentment, and perseverance. We are not at home, but we are called to live in this world, promoting the good of institutions that advance human flourishing and the glory of God. And this is complicated. The last point is the flaming sword. So we've covered why work is broken, how work is broken, and this is what can be done about it. This is the last verse in the chapter, Genesis 3:24. After God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here is something very interesting. What keeps Adam and Eve out of the garden is not a wall, or a door, but a flaming sword. And here's why that is interesting. Many years later, hundreds of years later, King Solomon of Israel builds the temple, and in it is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, which is covered by a veil. No one is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies except one person, the high priest, and even he can only enter once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. To offer a blood sacrifice, slayed by a sword, on behalf of the people. Now, the Holy of Holies is not just a beautiful room, which it is. It is also a room full of artistic symbolism. It is its walls are laden in gold, and that gold has carvings of and don't miss this after reading this verse: cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. In other words. It is a room that looks like a garden, and to enter this garden-like room requires a sacrifice slain by a sword. Centuries later, there is another garden and another high priest who offers himself as a blood sacrifice on our behalf. Isaiah tells us that he is cut off from the land of the living to atone for our sin, and that high priest is Jesus. He places himself under the sword And at the moment of death, after he has cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just as he gives up his spirit, the gospel writer Matthew says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The way was made for us to enter the most holy place. He offered himself for us so that we may enter the ultimate garden, the new heavens and the new earth, under a restored relationship with him. And this radically changes our relationship with him. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure blood, with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, for he who promised is faithful. But we have yet to enter that ultimate garden. We still live on earth between the sacrifice of Jesus and his final return. And until that final restoration happens, we live here and work on earth. This tension between the now and not yet is captured in one of my favorite verses in scripture. Hebrews 10:14, which says, "For by one sacrifice he has made perfect those who are being made holy." Which basically says, "We are already redeemed, but yet we are still being made holy." And Christians call this process sanctification. When many of us think of sanctification, we often think of the spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, coming to church, and those are all good, keep doing them for good reasons. But work is also a way that God uses to sanctify us. It is part of the process. And I wanna highlight three ways that God uses work to sanctify us. First, he uses work to sanctify our ambitions. This is our relationship to the work itself. As we recognize the beauty of creation and the frustrations of the fall, we embrace the reality that we won't be able to accomplish everything we desire. And far from being a limitation, this is actually a way that we can learn, we're sanctified to learn to depend on the Lord and trust in his providence. The great reformer Martin Luther puts this very well. He says, Make the bars and gates, but let him fasten them. Labor, and let him give the fruits. Govern and let him give his blessing. Fight and let him give the victory. Preach and let him win the hearts. Take a husband or wife and let him produce the children. Eat and drink and let him nourish and strengthen you. In all our doings, he is to work through us and he alone shall have the glory from it. In other words, we can work, we can make sandwiches, we can balance budgets, we can try cases, we can preach sermons. But it is the Lord who makes our work effective. He is the one who provides the nourishment, brings profitability, establishes justice, and saves souls. The results are in his hands. Our job is faithfulness. His job is fruitfulness. We are called to do his will, not his work. And this releases us from the frustration of fruitlessness and the tangles of pride when we know it is in his hands. Second, our work sanctifies our love. We often think of love in the context of our personal lives, our families and our friends, but work is one of the best ways to fulfill the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. After all, work is full of neighbors, colleagues, clients, vendors, bosses, supervisors, maintenance staff, direct reports, and more. And it is precisely because it is full of neighbors that we know it is full of sin and brokenness. Because everyone, including us, brings our own brokenness with them. When we know that Jesus put us above himself and came to serve us in order to save us, we actually can offer ourselves to others. Um, We don't have to be selfish or prideful. We can put others' interests above our own. Third, our work sanctifies our desires. This is about our motivations, why we work we often work to gain recognition or identity because we love money and we know money comes from work. But God loves for us to work as his image bearers, out of the joy of mirroring his work. He wants us to find our ultimate satisfaction in him, not our work. Psalm 90, models a great prayer for us, and I try to pray this every time I go to, every morning I go to work, and it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. I think we are all bundles of need, and if we are not satisfied in God's unfailing love in the morning, we're gonna go out into the world and we are gonna try to be satisfied in every single other thing that we can encounter, whether that's our boss's satisfaction, our our colleague's approval. We are bundles of need. We want comfort, success, control, approval, and so much more. But if we're satisfied in Christ, Then we go to work with different motives and different expectations. Not that we would be served, but that we would serve. And we pray as the Lord taught us to pray. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are his agents of redemption in our communities. There is an ultimate hope to which we can point. And as Amanda said, that is what gets her work through her day, is that bigger narrative. This is the bigger narrative that's bigger than connecting America through coins. When we can ground our work in the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, we're a part of something eternal that we're building today. Yes, our work may be fruitless, meaningless, selfish, and exilic, but in the love of Christ, He is making us holy through our work. He is sanctifying our ambitions, our loves, and our motivations. Thorns and thistles will come, but so will the plants of the field. Work will be both frustrating and fulfilling and sometimes it will even give, give us a glimpse of the beauty and glory of the kingdom. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we confess right now that, we, that you are in heaven and we are on earth, and our perspective of you being in heaven and our being on earth is so limited. So often we get frustrated because work can be fruitless, it can be meaningless, it can be selfish, and it is always exilic. And yet we know that you created work for good, so this tension is hard for us to reconcile but we want to mirror who you are and we want to trust in Jesus and we want to be satisfied with him in the morning so that we are not tempted to find satisfaction anywhere else but in you so that we can then release ourselves and serve our colleagues serve our bosses we no longer come and saying what can work serve and fi- how can work serve and fulfill me today but instead we go to work saying how can i serve my neighbors today how can i bless them even if we come with our own things, because we have the beauty of the gospel in us, and we are so satisfied in Christ. So I pray this week that that this is not just a, a talk that is heard or a message that is heard that is good to hear and it sounds wonderful, hopefully it does, but that tomorrow and the next day and the next day, we're actually able to live out your gospel. Lord, we want to be people in Illinois and beyond that point to the beauty of your kingdom and the beauty of what it means to be a child of God. And so I pray for this church that they would be redeemed people, exilic people, not seeking to be served, but to serve others. And all these things we ask in your name. Amen.